If you'll take your Bibles and open with me to the third chapter of Titus, small book after 2 Timothy. Some authors, commentators think it became, it came actually between the two Timothy letters, but it is part of the compendium of pastoral epistles that reveal the heart of a shepherd, Paul, to younger shepherds who are endeavoring to pastor faithfully in churches in a place that is hostile. And Titus is, like others, facing that same hostility, the same challenges it would be to establish a church where you have the normal day-to-day challenges of, of putting together a ministry and being used of God in that way, but also for those who would essentially seek to destroy, either unconsciously or quite honestly, consciously, to subvert the gospel. And Paul writes to his beloved Timothy, just as he wrote to Titus, in a heartfelt appeal to him to do the work of the ministry. And we find ourselves really isolating some words of Paul's in the third chapter of Titus, starting in verse 3. But I want to uh, just sort of lead us to that that text, this has been a, a, a several-month journey for me, and I want to take you there with me. This appeal for the believing church to savor the gospel that we so quickly relegate to, and not inappropriately we relegate to and isolate to evangelism, and those are the words of life for an unbelieving world. But in the process, as believers, if and when we do that, we give up, beloved people of God, we give up more than we know. We sacrifice more than we know when we do that, when we don't understand that this is for us, this is for you. And so no, no real quippy out you know, introductions, no no quotes, nothing like that. I want to tell you where we're going this morning. I want to tell you in our time this morning what I want to, to do. And moving from here, that I pray that you and I will be better equipped to do and have a heartbeat for. I want us to be propelled to the gospel, back to the gospel. I want us to be holding on to an unflinching focus of the truth that is fundamental to your faith, that is life-giving truth. As believers, I want us to have hearts that are enriched this morning and moving forward by exposing ourselves to the gospel now and when you go home. I want your life, my life, and the life of Bethany Church to demonstrate what really is a masterpiece, painting, if you will, of God's redemptive artistry to each other, the gift of grace toward one another, and the gift of grace to those who do not believe. I want you to know the blessings and benefits of the gospel, that you're living in the truth of the gospel now, And I want you to become 
a preacher of the gospel to a congregation of one. And the one is yourself. I want you to be able to be apt to teach, just like the qualifications of elders, to yourself. I want you to preach the gospel to yourself. But before we do that, we have to do one thing, and that is we have to be in the gospel. We have to savor the gospel. And this morning, Paul says to Titus the words of the gospel in clear form in chapter 3. It is amazing that it is so explicit. And uh, the, the passage from, uh, from verses 3 through 8 can serve for you as a believer to draw you back to the fullness of the gospel. It can also be a, a, a very helpful outline with regard to your communicating the gospel to someone that is not a believer, that you are appealing to, you're appealing to their soul. It is point by point by point a landing place for your eyes and a podium for you to speak from. We, uh, we don't look at the gospel enough as believers. And when we don't, there is something that is uh, sort of missing from our hearts and minds. We don't, have the, we don't have the tools, if you will. We don't have the recollection in the time of need that we do need from times of affliction that we are seeing even now taught for times of comfort and challenge. When we're not savoring the gospel, we have the apt to drift away from the gospel. I said a moment ago, this is not so much preaching, it's discipleship. It is appealing to you and it's encouraging you to move you to the gospel as a person day-to-day in the Word of God. When we're not savoring the gospel, it's like one pastor said that he labored for years and thinking he was trying to sort of buttress his own justification up, and he was miserable until he began to savor the gospel and, and enjoy the benefits that the gospel has for the believer. That's not a prison that the soul of, believer, of a believer needs to occupy. Do you know that? That is not a prison that, you need to, that your soul needs to occupy. The reason is, is because you are free to enjoy the gospel. You are free to understand it. Your eyes have been opened. You are free to give God glory for it and be strengthened by it. It is, it is not to be um, ignored by the believer. Perhaps if you do that, there's missteps in terms of your own, your, own, your own worldview, perhaps. Your own sanctification. You become antinomian, lawless. It's, it's grace covers anything that I do, and you miss the point. You become legalistic, and it becomes a checkbox religion for you without looking and savoring the gospel. You're at a loss for the degree of God's love for you, and you struggle with that in terms of your own assurance. There are implications here that we could go on and on, but that's the reason why this is so, I guess, erupting in my own heart the last several months because of the, the need for us to drown ourselves in gospel truth. You know, God delights in the gospel. Deuteronomy chapter 10, 
verses 14 to 15, it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong to heaven, and the heaven of heavens, this is to Moses, the earth with all that is in it, yet the Lord set his heart in love, and that literally means the Lord delighted in your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. His delight in choosing a people. And he followed that in the New Testament in Luke chapter 10, when the 70 disciples were coming back to Jesus. And Luke 10 says, at that very time he rejoiced greatly. One of only two times there explicitly noted that Jesus was actually rejoicing. There are other places that intimate that, but specifically uses the word Rejoice greatly in the Holy Spirit. And I said, I praise you, this is Jesus, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. That is, you've revealed your word to those who do not believe, and now they believe. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. God, the I Am, rejoices and savors the gospel itself. His saving work. The salvation of those who he calls. Look, this, this begs the question, where, where do I go? Where do you see that? In Paul's epistles, in, in Ephesians and Colossians and Romans, the first part of the, those, those three books, those first part is, is all gospel. The second is the, is, is the living out of those gospels. Maybe you, 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 you know that. But throughout the entirety of those letters, in the first part of those letters, the whole book is a reminder of the gospel. Paul did that to those churches. And everything else flows from that. The gospel is for the believer. The practical outworking, in the, in the, the empowerment to live a sanctified life, to cast our eyes upon Christ, to behold God himself, is wrapped up in the gospel message. That which we so often move on past. You know, it's like uh, the gospel was not uh, a little, little uh, grammar for a moment. There is a, there's a tense in Greek language, and one of the tenses puts a verb in, in, a, in a completed action. One and done. It's done. You're done. Nothing else, you're done. That's not the gospel. The gospel is in the perfect tense, essentially, if you will. Well, there was an action, and the, the effects of that action continue on and on and on afterward. That's where we find ourselves in Titus chapter 3. Look with me at Titus chapter 3, verse 3, and let me read for you those verses. And we're going to walk through that select passage, that, that text. And then I'm going to give you ten encouragements. Why it is so encouraging, why it is so beneficial for you to savor the gospel. That's in a moment. First Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy and hateful, hating one another. But... But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, 
so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And one more verse, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Paul gives us five points of reflection on the gospel. So I'm taking you where you can go. I'm setting you up. I'm giving you a template. So when we're at home and you're spending time in the Word, you go back to Titus chapter 3. And you follow along as Paul teaches you, just as he taught Titus, in the midst of his ministry, in the midst of your life and your ministry, and he he gives us five reflections. First, in verse 3, he reflects on our sin. It follows the gospel. He reflects on our sin, rejoicing in what we are no longer. You know, the righteousness there in verse 3 is required for being right with God. And we know that. Inheriting eternal life with Christ, there's nothing in us that can commend us to Christ. There is nothing. There is nothing. If you read that, and I'll read it one more time, and and I want you to put your face in that verse. Put your name there. I'll put my name there. Jim, you were also once foolish yourself disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures and spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating other people, hating other people, hating one another. I can put my name in there so easily because that's who I was. And if you're a believer, that's who you were. Now you say, well, not, that's, that's fairly strong. It is. Maybe you were one of those folks who demonstrated those kinds of, those kinds of uh, that kind of lifestyle, that sin in varying degrees, but in the core of your heart, you were just like Paul is describing there in all its descriptive language. It pits in plain view, it puts in plain view you and I seven characteristics in verse three. Seven characteristics. You were a fool, and I was a fool. We were foolish. Say, why do you why does it start here? Because that's who we were and that's what we were delivered from. But to understand and appreciate in the, most, in the deepest sense of the word appreciation, we have got to go there. We were foolish, unable to comprehend, as it says in verse 3, unable to comprehend spiritual truth in any way, shape, or form. Blinded to truth. We were disobedient. It's the same word used in, in uh, Titus 1.16. Disobedient to, directly to God, and the, the idea of disobedience or to disobey is not only in contrast to obey, it's also in contrast to having faith. You had no faith. It's one who refuses to be persuaded, and you in your darkness and me in my darkness, we were persuaded to, have, to not have faith. There was no faith. We were dead in our sins Refuse to be persuaded, unpersuadable, willingly disregarding authority of the Word of God, willingly disregarding the authority of Christ. And that's what we were. He says we were deceived. We were all deceived all the time. Matthew Henry said it, man in this unregenerate state or this degenerate state is of straying nature. 
is of a straying nature. And compared to a lost sheep, this must be sought and brought back and guided in the right way. He is weak and ready to be imposed on by the wiles and subtleties of Satan and of men lying in wait to seduce and mislead. That's what we were. As you savor the gospel, you have to understand where you were because the gospel becomes sweet to you in contrast to who you were. Paul sets this straight. There, there are several passages, but in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, I'll read it to you. But this is another area that, uh, that Paul brings us to bear. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And what are the next words that Paul says, uh, records for? Such were some of you. Hard words, but it does make the gospel sweet. Such were some of you, but you were washed. Another pivot point. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You have to see the bad news to savor the good news. What else were we? We were enslaved to lusts and passions. We're just walking through. We're just as this Paul wrote this to you and I. This we're just reading through his letter. This is what he says: lifestyle and willful, and we were accountable for those lusts and pleasures. Those pleasures were being enslaved. We were enslaved to those pleasures, and it's so interesting when you think of mankind's desire to be uh, independent and the ignorance and the blindness that covers the unbelieving mind that once blinded your mind and my mind. In all of that, we say we don't want to be mastered by anything, and yet the spiritual reality is you're mastered by the pleasures and the sins that you have no idea of. Well, see, you, see, you can begin to see as you pull back, and we'll get to the, the wonderful transition, small word, the wonderful transition into the... Uh, into the gospel, into the saving news that we enjoy. But that's who we were. We, were, we had lusts and pleasures. We were part of that as our lifestyle of one sort or another. We were slaves to that lust. The word pleasures is, we get the word hedonism or hedonistic. We were involved, we were enthralled by those things. Maybe they were a hobby. Maybe they were an enjoyment that drew you away from and captured your attention, away from truth and away from the person of Christ, away from glorifying the God that gave you life in the first place. That's a picture of the unbeliever. He says we were also filled with malice and envy. You know, and here's a footnote for you. These are not just isolated uh, this is not just an isolated activity. When we are part of that uh, lifestyle, when you are locked in sin, enslaved, your sin and my sin, our sin, has implications to the body of Christ uh, or, or those around me, the world, and even as, even as a believer has implications to the body of Christ. Sin does even, even, even now. 
I, I think of malice and envy, it's the grudging spirit that can't bear somebody else's prosperity or success, ministry, family. It is really comes down to just the baseness or the depravity of mankind with regard to, to uh, malice and envy. And he caps this, 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 this roster, this description of the sinful man's heart by saying, and you, by the way, you are hateful and hating one another. That was an active hating of the living God. And by the way, you were hating one another. There was no love in your heart. God had not invaded your heart with the Holy Spirit, had not shed his love abroad in your heart, and therefore the contents of your heart was hate and being hateful to God and to others. Oh, my. So that's the bad news. And Paul then pivots, just like he does in other places in the Scriptures, and we'll go there. But I want you to look at verse 4. But when the kindness of God appears, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His loving and His love for mankind appeared, and then verse 5, He saved us. The word but, words mean something, don't they? Aren't you glad that words mean something? When you talk about the plenary inspiration of the Word of God, and there are words that are small words, and the pastor takes time, Lance and others across the country take time to dissect what the Word means. If that's something that glosses over our minds and hearts as we listen to Lance on a week-by-week basis, and other faithful pastors and preachers all over the country, you would not want to erase that word, would you? The word but. But, when the kindness of God... This is, like, this is like water. This is fresh water that invades, verse 3, and washes over all of that decrepit, vile sin that we once had. This is self-explanatory to the heart of a redeemed man. Everything changes with that word, but... That is a point, my friends that you and I can talk about, it is, that is a point that you can, you can spend time in the quietness of your own heart, in a corner of your home with an open Bible and think about what the word but means in this context. And that is enriching. And that is encouraging. It humbles the soul to see. It creates the deepest gratitude if it's not contrasted with verse 3. I just want to encourage you to go there. That's what I want to do this morning. I want you to go there. I want us as a church to go there. You know, we do, we do talk about evangelism. We talk about outreach. We talk about the gospel. Look, if we're not people who, if we're not people who savor this gospel, if we're not people who look into that which saved you and I, the gospel will not be readily available on your lips. It will not. We have to be people of the Word. And in the Word, we have to be people who are ready 
to give a, a, a defense of the hope that lies within us. And we can't be there unless we're doing just this. Go back to, Tem- uh, go back to Titus chapter 3. This is wonderful. He reiterated this whole theme, this whole grand theme, Paul did, in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just read it for you real quickly. Ephesians chapter 2, the first seven verses. So put a little note there. So when you go to Titus 3 in your quiet time, when you go there in your devotions, when you go there to savor the gospel, turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1-7, and you'll get the same picture. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them too, we all formerly lived in the, here it goes, here's your list, lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh, of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You were, that's who we were, that's who you were, that's who I was. And again, by the, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's that small word again in verse, in verse 4, but God. You need to settle down in that. Sit in that. But God, being rich in mercy, and we're going to see that in just a few moments, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, out of grace, sola gratia, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And then you fast forward over to Titus chapter 3, and you see exactly the same thing. Paul repeats himself. Blessedly so. This kindness is a kindness that is unknown. This kindness led you to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, we know that. We know he drew us to repentance out of his kindness. David, the sweet singer of Israel, beckons us to savor this truth too. David. In Psalm 34, 8, he said, Savoring, remember that. Savor, savor, savor. Taste it. Taste the gospel. David said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Grace is a fountain. Beloved people, grace is a fountain and peace is the river that flows out of that fountain. Go back to chapter 3, verse 4, and understand the grace or the kindness of God toward you in light of verse 3. And it'll bring joy to your whole, your whole soul. And you'll begin to see those opportunities for people around you. But you will see God more clearly as He is your Redeemer. Verse 5 and verse 6, we reflect on salvation. We reflect on, on grace. We've reflected on sin. We reflect on salvation. And so when and how did this great kindness of, of God appear? Verse 5 and 6 really are the epicenter. And the first three words of verse 5 
are sort of the crescendo. They're not the culmination, but they are the crescendo, the epicenter, the focal point of the passage. And it comes in three short words. That's why words matter. He saved us. I know that you as a believer have a notion in the last 20 minutes. I've heard this. I know this. And I know you know it. The question is, do you treasure it and do you allow your mind and heart to ruminate on the gospel that saved you? I'm repeating myself. But it's a question. Do you do that? Do we do that as a church? He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, His great, great mercy. He pitied us in our miserable condition. He negates the work prior to salvation and presents what we did not do, we could not do, we did not do, we weren't unable to do, and that is gain righteousness by doing anything of our own accord. The washing and renewing of our minds and hearts, the cleansing of who we are, We're made new. 1 Corinthians 13 says, we're new creatures. You were a new creature. Allow your mind to be saturated by the reality if you're a truly, genuinely born-again person. That you have been made new. I remember that verse in Sunday school. That's infinite truth, people. I remember it in Sunday school too. I remember it in youth group. I remember reading that. That is infinite truth. It was infinite truth when you were 13 or 17, and it's infinite truth in your adulthood. Now, the idea that you were made new through the work of the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son, and even Paul says, look, we're going to give, we're going to give God his, his due glory. And through verses 4, 5, and 7, Paul calls out the Father and the Holy Spirit, and the Son, and they were all involved in the life-giving gospel that you know and should be deeply appreciating minute by minute. And you might be. We might be an appreciative people. We want to be abundantly appreciative of that. It's interesting, the mercy is seen both in two different ways. One is the quality of that mercy. Look down in, in verse 6. Whom he, two words, poured out. Poured out? He does, it doesn't say he doled a little here, and he gave a portion here, although a portion from God is something to behold. This is over-the-top language for you and I. Savor the fact that God poured out to you, poured out to you, this washing of regeneration, liberally, effusively. It was a torrent of grace to you and to me. What a great thing to think about. That the living God would not just save me, but He would open gates that unleashed 
a tidal wave of mercy to you? Not only is it that, not only is it quantity, but it's quality. And the quality is seen just above that, whom he poured out upon us richly, deeply. It's quantity and quality for us, what he did through the glorious person of his Son. In verse 7, we reflect on righteousness. This is the purpose, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a purpose clause there. There's a, there's a, uh, a move from your status to what He would want to accomplish, and that is your, your inheritance in life. Your inheritance in life everlasting. God doesn't turn a blind eye to our sin. And that is nowhere found, I think, better. I have a friend of mine does woodworking, and, and I had him do a, a, a plaque, and it sits on my shelf just above my desk. And it simply was my attempt to savor 2 Corinthians 5.21 try to make that as, 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 as a, just an ongoing practice of looking at that and just thinking about that. I have a, I have a password that has 2 Corinthians 5.21 on it. I, I'm going to have to change that. I'm not going to tell you what it's for, though. <laughs> and the reason why I say that is because that verse is such richness for you and I. For our sake... He made him, this is all captured in those two verses at 5, 6, and 7. He made him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him who knew knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, says in in the New American Standard. That is the great exchange that you should be deeply, and we should be deeply, deeply appreciative of. Isn't it true? Look, this is not something you don't know, but I want you to go there. I want you to go there. Our our righteousness was like filthy rags. Familiar passage to you in Isaiah 64. Filthy rags. I'm not going to describe that to you in detail, but let me tell you. That is not something that is complementary in any way, shape, or form. In any way, shape, or form. That's who we were. That's what our sin was. But because of God's grace, righteousness has come to us. Just like it says, it quotes for us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I just want you to think along with me. I just want you to think along with me. We need to be obedient, and that's Paul's capstone on this recollection, the reflection of the gospel. In the final verse there, it is a trustworthy statement concerning these things. I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed, Titus, 
God will be careful to engage in good deeds. And that is, an, that is a matter of obedience. That's a matter of a demonstration of a genuine believer. The desire and affection for the, for the glory of God and the inclination now to obey the living God. It's an evidence of saving faith. Read through the, the book of 1 John for starters. That idea of good works, that idea of works now that please the Lord, that actually He is pleased with, is an outcome of this great salvation. Now look. There was a man who wrote a book called The Gospel Primer. And, and Milton Vincent is a pastor in Riverside. And my daughter is actually going to school in Riverside and she's attending his church. And I want to tell you, this man struggled until he began to savor and gaze and focus on the gospel just in his own, for his own edification, for his own life. He struggled with trying to satisfy a God that's been satisfied. And he has 31 encouragements or 31 places to take you that will be a great encouragement to you with regard to preaching the gospel to yourself. Why did we just step through something familiar? Why did we step through that? The reason why I stepped you through the clarity of the gospel in Titus chapter 3 is because you have to have that in view of understanding what the great benefits are coming to you because of the gospel. You can't skip that part. That's why we just sort of did that stepwise fashion through Titus chapter 3. Let me give you just 10 areas out of 31 that he, that Milton Vincent outlines for the reader. And I'm telling you, this is a blessing to the soul of the believer when we can look at the gospel and we, and, and we soak in and eat and take in all the benefits that are for you. Okay? Point number one, encouragement number one. We as believers are at rest. We're, we're at rest. Go to chap- Romans chapter 5. We are at rest. And that word rest is rest from everything that you would need to do to gain the favor and gain righteousness so needy for your eternal life. Romans chapter 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have, what's that word? Peace. That implies what? What does, the, what does imply, therefore, having been, at one point, been justified by faith, we have peace? What happened before that? What does that imply before that? War. That's exactly right. War. A state of war between the living God and us. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Take time to look at that again and savor that gospel truth, that we have peace with God Himself. Our standing in Romans, uh, in Romans 4, 5, our standing is not based on any merits or work, but on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, 
someplace you can go. But I'm telling you, you will spend days enjoying and tasting the truth of Romans chapter 5 if you're indeed a believer. Christ secured for us the truth of the new covenant back in Ezekiel. Ephesians, we've already read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. We have been saved. It uses both the present tense, the perfect tense, and the present tense. By grace you have been saved in past time completely with the result that you are in a state of salvation which persists through present time. I understand that's grammar, but what does it say? We are at peace, and it's an unending peace. That's what you have as a believer. You meditate on the gospel and enjoy the peace you have with the living God. But I don't feel at peace with God. Go back to the gospel. Go back to the gospel. Point number two, we as believers are freed from the enslavement of sin. Now perhaps as I read these, they may not immediately resonate with you. And maybe they do. Maybe you're a person who there is unconfessed sin that you're holding on to, that you seem to be dogged by. There are besetting sins. Go back to the gospel. We as believers are freed from enslavement. The the reality is that you were freed Period. That is a presupposition of Scripture. The Bible assumes, the Bible tells you, you were freed. Romans 6.14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. I can confidently say and know and live a life where sin is not my master. It, God will take me to the place of repentance And I will confess that sin, but I am no longer mastered by that sin. Sin is a real enemy. If you've been coming to Bethany for any length of time, if you're new, you will hear that message here on a regular basis, this reality of sin and what we must do to combat that sin. We're not freed from sin to sin. We're freed from sin to be able to live a life that pleases God We as believers are freed, and you are freed. Contemplate the gospel and understand that freedom from enslavement of sin, if there is besetting sin in your life, and confess that sin to him. Third, we as as believers can love one another with God-wrought love. That is gospel truth. That's a benefit. There are benefits. There are blessings that we enjoy that the world does not enjoy. We as believers can love one another with God-wrought love. I love what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, and and, uh, Lance will take us there in depth in the very near future. In verses 3 through 7, he said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Paul loved those people. 
we have that same God-wrought love. And we love because He first loved us, because we are born again. Four, we as believers, another benefit of savoring the gospel, we as believers can love God and love one another. It's simply put, that is an impossibility with a love that, that it does not exist. There is, it is hatred. You saw back in, in, verse, in verse 3, we're hateful and hate one another. And that gets tossed on its ear. We can believe God, or the believers can love God and love one another. And of course, we see that as, as believers. You've been the recipient of those that kind of love from other people, and you have given that love to other people. It is something that just comes out of the believer. Five, we as believers are gifts to one another. Contemplate the gospel and understand that you are a gift to others and they are a gift to you. We're fellow citizens and we are in the household of God because of that that very truth. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, I'll just read it quickly to you. We're we're running out of time. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about the breaking down of barriers, racial and economic and social barriers. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, the Gentiles and the Jews. That was the big racial divide at the time. And it was significant. It wasn't passing. It was real. For he himself is our peace who broke, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, that state of being an enemy, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by it having put to death that enmity What a wonderful thing that is. That is gospel truth. We are gifts to one another. All of those barriers are gone. Point number six, we as believers can have hearts burdened and affectionate for non-believers, for those who are lost. Look, in Ephesians chapter four, Paul says, captures this in a, in, a, in, a, in a brief moment in verse 32. Be kind to one another. He's talking to the church. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Look, we forgive others because we have been first forgiven. There is that message of forgiveness. And not savoring the gospel or holding, holding that, that meditation of the gospel at arm's length, doesn't crystallize that, doesn't keep that crisp. But certainly embracing it will do that. And that's, the, that's that motivation. When we have outreach, when we talk about evangelism, we talk about outreach, we must be people who are enveloped in the gospel. And that's one of the reasons it, 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 it creates that thirst. Because you were forgiven at one point and there are those who need to be forgiven around you. Point number seven, we as believers can know true and genuine humility. Pride is the root, you know this, pride is the root of, this, of our sinfulness. And there is something about the body of Christ that, that 
holds on to genuine humility, you see that, and it is, it is a treasure. It's a treasure. We can know humility that God recognizes as a believer if we're contemplating the gospel. Point number eight, we as believers can have godly perspectives and trials. Now, for me this morning to camp on that, that point for any length of time in the view of those around us and the Quins is, is not doing it justice, but the Word of God, the Word of God comes ringing through all of that. This is not, it's not Jim, this is, this is the Word of God. Paul says in Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as, in, as rubbish. Those are trials. Those are afflictions in order that I might, I might gain Christ. That is gospel language. And that is absorbed and understood when we savor the gospel. Point number nine, we as believers can be exposed for the sinners that we really are. Well, that's important too. In fact, that's monumental. And it's a blessing. In in the latter part of Romans chapter 7, Paul is at his wit's end. Paul is in a struggle in his heart, in his mind, the realization that he does things that he does not want to do. He doesn't do the things that he should do. Oh, wretched man that I am. But the story doesn't stop there. You know, because Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We are exposed as sinners, and that is a place that we need to go from time to time, and looking at the gospel does just that. And yet, we can also hold on to verse 1 of chapter 8. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Oh, we need to go in repentance to Him, but there is no condemnation. And finally, we as believers can have the hope and the yearning of heaven while we glorify Him here now. That is a benefit of gospel meditation, savoring truth. That is gospel truth itself. And we can have a joyous focus on heaven. This hope of heaven has a purifying effect on our lives. First John says, And everyone who hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. There is hope outside this world. That's only ten points, ten encouragements that Milton Vincent gives to you and I. I'm passing them to you. Those are not original. But this morning, that wasn't an objective of mine. My desire for you, as I said to begin with, and my desire for our church is to be a church that richly, richly enjoys and savors the gospel, reminds, that reminds us 
of that truth. That we would preach this to ourselves, keeping it vivid, and that we would understand that there is vast benefits as a believer because of the gospel. Let's be people who let's be people who do that in groups by yourself and we will pray that each one of us mutually pray that each one of us enjoys that refreshment that the gospel brings uniquely to those who love him. Why don't we pray together? Father, we have only we have only touched this morning on things that are vastly indescribable, the, the, the comprehension of the vastness of the gospel, the depth of your love for us, the enormity of grace, the heinousness of the sin that we were in. Father, the invasion the gracious kindness that you show to each one of us, awakening our hearts to your Son, awakening our hearts to sin, drawing us away from damnation, and bringing us into the kingdom of your dear Son. Father, we thank you for that this morning. My prayer, Father, this morning for all of us is that we would be people that taste this wonderful truth on a regular basis, that we'd go back to it, that we would be people who ruminate on gospel truth and know that that is our, that is our foundation for everything else. And it is all because of your grace through your glorious Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for our time this morning. And may Titus chapter 3 ring in our hearts as a place of blessed refuge. Father, thank you for our time this morning in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.